You're listening to It's Not All Academic, a podcast that takes you into the minds and hearts of innovators and problem solvers who are reshaping our world. I'm your host, Nadine Shadia, and in this series, I'll bring you inspiring stories and thought-provoking conversations with experts from various fields. Grab your headphones and get ready to open your ears to a world beyond academia. Hello and welcome to the podcast series, It's Not All Academic. Warm welcome to my first guest, Professor Mark Hutchinson, on this, the very first episode. Welcome, Mark. G'day, Nadine. In the interest of full disclosure, you and I are already well known to each other. We are. Uh, we've had seven years now working together at the University of Adelaide, and I've pretty much from day one have been supporting you in, in that journey. That you have. Before we kick things off, I just wanted to do a brief acknowledgement that we're recording this episode in Adelaide, South Australia, on the lands of the Ghana people. We acknowledge their connection to country and pay our respects to elders past and present. And I don't want to just pay this lip service. I really want to have absolute recognition of the role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had as the first scientists in Australia, that as custodians of the land, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were the original innovators and problem solvers in our region. So from creating shelter, hunting and gathering tools, origins of glue and to bush medicine, they're just some of the innovations that they've been responsible for. Yeah, no, Nadim, 100% I also acknowledge all the work that I do is on Ghana land, uh, pay my respect to elders past and present. In my role as President of Science and Technology Australia, last year I got uh, to sit in yarning circles, uh, listen to uh, current Indigenous elders uh, and learn about what we have not done uh, and we need to do more of in this country and to realise that whilst Science and Technology Australia is a peak body for science and technology in the country, we aren't the peak body because we're not the oldest. <laughs> We've only been around for a, literally 40 years Uh We've got to pay some due respect to 65,000 years of continuous civilization here in this country. So, uh, yeah, full hat tip to that. So what I wanted to do, Mark, given that this is the inaugural and, and first episode, I wanted to start with what I'm calling a bit of a mission statement and, and invite your feedback afterwards. I've given some thought about who I want this podcast to talk to, distinct from who might actually listen. That's something I've got no control over. <laughs> But um, in terms of who I'm talking to, I'm, I'm talking to the postdoctoral researcher, developing those research skills. Perhaps they're working on a specific research question, but they're not quite sure where that path will lead. They're curious about what they can make of a career in this field. I'm also talking to early and mid-career researchers, the people that are writing grant applications, they're publishing journal articles, building their citations and advancing their field. Maybe some of them are frustrated at not having the success they'd like with their grants. Maybe they're looking to better understand the impact of their ideas and research in the world. And they're probably wanting to know how to better articulate the value of those ideas and their capabilities to business leaders, investors, government, but not entirely sure how to do that or even where to start. And lastly, for really anyone with an entrepreneurial spirit, so young Nadine. <laughs> I want this podcast to fuel their belief in what they're doing and spark action. So that shift from potential into kinetic energy. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk to all of the above while we maintain a social and environmental conscience. Mm. Gold. I mean, that, that, that community that you've identified, um, that's who excites me into doing what I do um, to take those leaps forward in my activities that then creates opportunities for that community to then uh, fill in uh, and, and expand themselves. And in all reality, I think unless we have in this post-pandemic world where we've all harnessed remote learning, remote working, uh, Zooms, podcasts, and yet we are uh, more isolated uh, and in some cases lonely without direct mentoring. Uh, and I think, you know, through podcasts like this, conversations at the virtual water cooler around these kinds of ideas, um, so important to be able to create a career, not just a sprint and fall over um, kind of uh, approach to work. Before I go into your background, I'm going to just mention briefly why I chose you. You've got a foot in both camps. On one hand, you're the world-renowned neuroscientist, you're kicking goals by all academic metrics. But on the other hand, you're also advocating for better translational outcomes from research. 
I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the role as president of STA mm. and how long you've been doing it, how long you've got to go, and what sort of things are on that agenda. Yeah, so uh, just a little over three years ago, uh, I was nominated uh, and was successful in becoming the president-elect of Science and Technology Australia, and then two years ago became president, and I'm coming up to my last few months of term until November this year. It's been a wild ride. Um, to put it lightly, there's no better time to be uh, the president of a science and technology organisation like STA than when the world needs more science and technology coming out the back end of a pandemic, uh, being faced with climate change uh, and energy transition uh, together with, my goodness, the advent of machine learning, large language models, AI uh, and everything else in between. So I did not realise, uh, firstly, how little I didn't know about what was actually happening by the brilliance of Australian scientists and technologists right across the country. Um, I didn't understand how segmented, not broken, but um, disassembled the entire research ecosystem was. I knew as a researcher that if I needed research funding, I'd apply to the ARC or NHMRC. And then I knew if I had an idea that got out of those early funding projects, I knew how to go and find new money that wasn't grant competitive research money. Yes. Yeah. But then I realized not everybody knows that. And that breaking, not, it's not broken, it's disconnected system I wasn't aware at the scale of that and, critically, how relatively simply governments and scientists, technologists, academics working collaboratively could actually connect this up. Uh, and so I think that's been some of the lessons I've learned and then I've done other crazy things like giving a National Press Club address and being on an ARC legislative review panel and, and, and. Yeah, yeah, it's been extraordinary. Could you elaborate a little bit for me on how the career started and <laughs> did you foresee that you'd lead a centre like the no, Centre for Nanoscale no, Biophotonics? No, no, no. Uh, there, there is no magic path that Mark had set forth at day one that said I was going to do X by the time I'm 30 and then Y by the time I'm 40. I was a terrible student, not because I didn't want to be um, academically oriented. It was just I was a terrible reader and writer. I, you know, Looking back, mum and dad uh, had great patience in helping me stick at the academic thing because I literally was a poor reader and writer. Okay. Um, my handwriting still today is the best encryption method possible because <laughs> only I can interpret it. Um, I didn't have dyslexia, but it was a f variation thereof. They called it scotopic sensitivity back then. I don't know what it's called now, but pretty much it meant that the words seemed to move around on the page. I couldn't follow one line to the next, which meant academically I was terrible at reading aloud in class and all of that. But because I was bad at those things, my grandparents gave me toolkits to pull things apart and put things together again, and I was always questioning there's a there's a VCR player, it's broken, can I fix it again yeah. by taking it apart and seeing how it works? Yep. So I got really good at taking things apart and putting them back together again, much to the demise of most of the appliances <laughs> in our house because you know, Mark had been at them. Um, made it through school, made it through university, but it was actually, again, not in the writing of exam papers, but it was in the practical applications in the research labs that I just loved it. And I'm sure, not sure, I know I was one of those annoying students that was always the first one to rock up and always the last one to leave, asking a million and one questions about why do we add this reagent now? Why have we got magnesium in this particular PCR reaction? Well, why is that? That got me through to where I was then actually doing what I was good at, which was formulating hypotheses, designing experiments, and then trying that out. Um, I I gradually learned how to write stories that turned into manuscripts. Um, they never start as a manuscript for me. It's always about that narrative of why we're doing this, yep. how do we tell that story effectively. And then that happens to then lead me to America, that happens to allow me to come back to Australia. And, yeah, it's it's been a wild, exciting ride. And I guess I see lessons I've learned from my journey that – are completely useless today because those opportunities aren't available. 
However, there are elements there of persistence and not always looking to the same money pot every single time that I think are um, able to be shared now and, if anything, are even more important now yeah. uh, as we are operating in a very, very tight uh, budgetary constrained research environment. Yeah, and I think what that's lending itself to is for academics especially to diversify their skill set. Mm. And mm. that's something I'll touch on in subsequent interviews, but absolutely I think uh, similar to what I'm doing in recording this podcast, we, we need to continue to evolve so that we can drill into those challenges that are multidisciplinary in nature yeah. and they require a really diverse skill set. Yeah, and I think the thing that I hear from my academic peers quite often is, well, we don't do it that way. It's like, oh, okay, that doesn't mean we shouldn't actually explore if it is a way to do yeah. it. Never should we be tinkering with the credibility and independence of academic thought and, and uh, examination using robust measures of controlled experimental design. But as we start getting given new opportunities to explore the bounds of knowledge, we have to adapt our approach uh, and then validate those adapted approaches are the correct one, which means we then actually expand our toolkit. So... One thing that I'm hearing directly from, say, pharmaceutical companies is no longer are they only interested solely in the druggable target uh, pathways. It's also the patient journey, mm. the recruitment, the effects, mm. and how that eventuates in terms of outcomes. Yeah. And they want to create that as a bit of a feedback loop. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if we're looking at pharmaceutical companies at the end of the day, most of them are servicing a share base that share base expects a return. Now, it's very nice to have a blockbuster drug and that has a very, very nice return on it for a short period of time, which is not a sustainable business model. Yeah. It's a lumpy income structure. Yeah. That doesn't work. Where you can gain profound uh, value is through incremental gains in existing established systems. So, you know, we've seen case in point discussions with end users at the beginning of a project profoundly changes the shape and structure of the program of work we undertake because it actually is then constrained to reality yeah. rather than Mark's future science fiction. Yep. With a little bit of that excitement thrown <laughs> in there, but, but actually keeping that reality in mind. Those efficiencies that are gained by having that simple conversation at the beginning of the journey have a profound wave effect at the end of that uh, project. And I think for companies they are looking to those ripples that then become waivable at the end because they are looking to optimise a very, very competitive system um, with hopefully some big windfalls in there for a small molecule drug discovery program through to, you know, maybe it's a tech innovation that allows for faster spin-up and safer delivery. And things like AI will help the realisation of that. It'll be around uh, planning their studies, the recruitment process, the supply and logistics chain part oh, of it as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the best example I've seen most recently was just in Business Week a few weeks ago, Takeda uh, purchasing a very conservative yet very large Japanese pharmaceutical company purchasing a psoriasis uh, new chemical entity from a Boston company. That company did an AI-driven uh, discovery program uh, in November 2022 uh, discovered the lead compound, did in vitro optimized trials in November, December, converted those to rodent trials mm. in December, January, flipped out to patent protection, and within six months had gone from press button on computer AI model to an exit of $4 billion Full to Takeda. Wow. Now, that is extraordinary. But then you start thinking about what data would you use to apply new optimized search algorithms in there. We already know what the patent landscape is for yeah. current patented small molecules. Let's negatively weight all of that literature for our novel drug discovery program. We know what is bad from a tox perspective. Let's negatively weight that in a search paradigm. We then know what is optimized from a synthesis perspective. Let's positively weight those structures, all of that, as part of the expected journey to a target at the end can be built in because of the power of AI yeah. and complex data sets. Um, so unless we harness that now, we're going to be left way behind. Uh, and, and other nations are miles ahead. 
Totally. And and so I think the part that I'm seeing now as an opportunity is not only using AI to optimize existing systems that we know about, but starting to use AI and generative AI to design new insights into existing systems. And that's where literally our brain operates at best in two to maybe three dimensions with time an awkward fourth, if we're (laughs) lucky. The dimensionality of those machine learning and large models, unparalleled. So we now have computational power that we have not had before that is allowing us to run dirty scripting that is far too complex for even yesterday's computers, we can now start asking these questions with almost limitless parallel uh, processing to now ask these crazy big complicated questions. If we don't harness that, we are going to get left behind. Backpedaling a little, the key domains you work in are across health, biomedicine, biotech, Mm -hmm. and you have a laboratory called the Neuroimmunopharmacology Laboratory with Mm -hmm. some fantastic people that I also work with. Loosely speaking, is that around chronic pain, uh, addiction, spinal cord injury, and the role the immune system plays in that? Yeah, so so my my journey to neuroimmunopharmacology, again, was not a planned one. Um, I loved the simplicity or my perceived simplicity of small molecules acting at protein targets, receptors, and so trained in pharmacology and happened to fall into a project that was around opioid analgesics. Studying opioid analgesics, I got in to understand pain. And then I got in to understand addiction. And I suddenly realized pain and addiction are not just about the drug. There's also these biopsychosocial pieces to these pathologies. And how on earth do we actually integrate all of that together? And that, that took me on a journey of trying to explore how does our brain and spinal cord actually interact with our body. And this was at the early stages of us appreciating globally that the immune cells of the brain and spinal cord were actually involved in anything more than holding the brain together. Sure. And so I got very, very fortunate to be working with um, some world leaders within the Center for Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder with Linda Watkins and Steve Mayer at sort of this beautiful inflection point in the field where there was a sudden realization that glia mattered and that glia were intelligibly connected to what was happening in the peripheral immune system. And what that spun out was a huge amount of really exciting discovery of asking questions like, how do we know we are sick? And let's put some molecular and cellular pathways uh, to name those specific pathways and then linking that to pain. And so when I came back to Australia and established the Neuroimmunopharmacology Group, I specifically called it the Neuroimmunopharmacology Group because I wanted people to realize we were interested in neuro, immune, and drugs. Anywhere in there, I'm happy to play. Now, that was happy to play because we had foundational capabilities that allowed us to uh, ask questions that no one else could ask. But it also meant that we had a language and access to pharmaceutical companies who had classically had a neuropharmacology drug development program or an immunotherapeutics drug development program, but the two never spoke to each other because they were in different (laughs) buildings or on different continents and literally different language bases. So suddenly I would then be the person introducing left and right hand of the same company (laughs) together to say, have you actually ever thought of taking this drug and putting it over there? And I wasn't looking to clip the ticket. I was actually trying to say, this is really cool opportunity, people. If you let me do some of the work with your first-in-class drug, I can then do some really cool science that allows you both to understand, which then now means we're doing everything from animal pain, human pain, through to optimizing human health and elite performance and measurement thereof. That's really where I wanted to take that conversation is that whilst there's the pharma and human health component, I've also worked with you in cross-discipline and and alternate segments. Mm -hmm. So we do work with defense and we do work with agriculture and, and people listening might wonder how and where the immune system and immunopharmacology relate to Mm. those kinds of applications. Mm. I guess it it sort of goes even further beyond the actual biology there as well. So if I paint the picture of a brilliant 
producer here in Australia who has a sheep operation in the mid-north of South Australia. They're working in a dry, arid environment most of the year with buckets of rain at certain points in time. They've got a limited skilled workforce that's there. They've got bugger all data connectivity most of the time on most of the property. Yeah, They're running on razor-thin margins. There's not a lot of grass on the ground, so they're eking out profits and a livelihood on the best practice they have. So yeah. any new piece of technology immediately has to fit into that realm of operation. Can't cost a lot, has to provide information to the hand of the operator who is very, very busy running around doing their existing work and has to be working in a data-minimized environment. I paint that picture for that sheep producer. If we then look at a deployed service personnel operating in a dusty environment, extreme data-compromised area, with limited time to process information, the same needs are actually at play for the farmer and the warfighter. And then we start talking about a remote health worker who's been up 20 hours delivering a baby to someone and then has to do something else again, limited time, resources yeah. to provide that health. There is a commonality in the needs case, use case for all of those. So what if there are questions that we can ask in our tech development that starts with that lens, suddenly the solution that we get, which we start with, let's say, sheep physiology in mind for pain, might actually be deployable in regional remote health and to the warfighter, and I've now got three markets that I can deal with yep. out of the same research project. And in the same breath, you've got harsh and remote environments up in space. Careful, Nadim. You're getting me to talk about <laughs> Mars now. We'll be there in, in seven to 10 years. Yep. Yeah. So this is the point. If we don't have our horizons reset to those different targets, the pain researcher that I was 20 years ago yep. never have thought stupidly, oh, my rats that I'm using for preclinical rodent models that I'm trying to help a human actually might be more relevant to a sheep yeah. 20 kilometers north of where I am here today than it would be in 10 years' time, if I'm lucky, to a human in the hospital. Yeah. So I think that's where having those conversations early with the user's case in mind at the table actually opens up opportunities whilst closing critical doors of exploration. And that's that's an exciting thing that's been, um, you know, I'm quite passionate about to ensure that when we're starting to look at grants, we're actually starting to write the grant for, yes, I'm trying to tackle pain in humans, but a key element of that development is also to say any innovations from this health spend actually can also influence the benefits of the warfighter yep. or of the farmer. And hand on heart, I know that yep. because here's the evidence. That's right. And a lot of that's stemming from just having conversations and like you said, joining hands between whether it's in a university, between faculty, schools, disciplines, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in a company between different organisational units. Like yeah. they just have to come together and have the conversation. And I guess the thing that I hear often from my academic colleagues is how do you get time to do this? I had a conversation, you know, two years ago with someone and, and it never went anywhere. Yeah. It was like, yeah, of course it didn't. How many times did you have that conversation? <laughs> Just the once? Yeah. I'm operating on roughly a 1 in 20 and a 1 in 30 conversation outcome to a to an opportunity. As a strike rate. Yeah, strike yeah. rate. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. I think there's an expectation adjustment here. So when we have a conversation... It can't just be transactional. It can't be, I have a magic green bean and you're going to love this green bean no matter what you are coming to this table Sure, with. yeah. It's actually about, let's understand where you're at. And maybe we walk away not doing anything for ourselves, but introing to our colleagues. I mean, classic one was we were up at the um, Golden North Ice Cream Factory in, in Laura, just to the north of, of us here in Adelaide. Um, brilliant company. If you haven't had a Golden Twin, you've got to have Golden <laughs> Twin Ice Cream walking through their heritage-listed ice creamery. So there's certain things they're not allowed to do to the place. They yeah. have to have a timber fire-driven um, steam system because it's heritage-listed. But they were still walking around with a ledger taking the temperature off of each of their milk containers. I was like, you know you can either put a camera on that and measure those if you're not allowed to shift it, or you could get a digital one of that, and it could all be Wi-Fi'd together. I'm like, 
seriously? <laughs> I, yeah, th- this is not my game. Yeah. There's a bunch of engineers yeah. who do this. Yeah. But the reason they hadn't even explored that was because they were so heads down, bum up, busy, just keeping the company yeah. afloat that any innovation was just a bridge too far. Yeah. Now, if we can do more of that, brilliant. That That's our role. And that's the beauty of a university is there's mechanisms to work with the university where industry can have questions answered, research-type questions answered, and then work out the way that fits into their process, their system, their product. I want to talk a little bit about the Australian ecosystem and I wanted to start with a speech that was given about 12 months ago by Ed Husick, Minister for Industry and Science, at the Australian Government's Jobs and Skills Summit. And his message in there was, we need to invigorate the faith in Australian ideas from wherever they emerge, from the factory floor, from the lab bench and the boardroom. It's the key to creating new firms, strengthening existing ones and growing jobs. And this bench to boardroom concept is one you advocate strongly for, and it was the theme of your National Press Club address. Mm. What do you mean when you say bench to boardroom? Yeah, so what, what I try and articulate by focusing on a bench to boardroom impact is rather than the classical academic approach to have an idea at the lab bench and test it there and to then publish it in a journal article that most of times sits on a digital bookshelf never to be read by anybody else other than another academic boffin. That is a sad destination for brilliant ideas. And our expectation as academics that, well, we're rewarded for that. Surely that's enough. Why should I have to do more? Well, isn't your idea worth being shared with others who might actually use it? So that does not occur spontaneously flying off a bookshelf, right? (laughs) This is not some Harry Potter wizard moment where the books fly out and suddenly find themselves on the people who need to know this information, which means we need to start taking that information, I believe, from the brilliant journal papers and then extending that out into general discourse, often at boardrooms. Because boardrooms are where some critical decisions get made about implementation. Now, I'm not just talking about the boardrooms filled with a lot of stiff suits with a lot of money. We're also talking about the community groups, the, the groups who are making decisions about priorities for society and community. Our information and knowledge needs to be accessible and aware to those communities. That is not an easy task, especially if you just accept that the path is to have an idea incubate it by yourself, publish that paper, and then once you have the paper, suddenly expect it to translate and be relevant to the community. No, you need to actually connect that story up. You need to have almost co-created your idea in the boardroom, translate it to the bench, take it back to the bench, test it out, refine it, and then go boardroom and spin it out. And so that's that's the journey that I'm pretty passionate about to ensure that we are always asking questions that are relevant to presentable boardroom scenarios. And, and that's sometimes difficult because it does mean that the questions that we actually want to ask may not be the best question because they actually don't have- Miss the mark. They miss the mark. Yeah. Literally. Probably there's a lack of scientific communicators, people that can communicate the findings and the outcomes in a value proposition kind of way to those people that are making decisions in the business. Yeah, you know, I think there is a place for the specialist science communicator. But I think, and this is one of the things that's changing in a connected world, just expecting the science communicator to be able to communicate that science, there's simply too many brilliant ideas floating around for enough people to get hold of that. So we can take control of that. We can then work to ensure that our communication of our ideas is uh, clear, articulate, and targeted to the right communities. Um, We can ensure that the questions we are asking are actually the right questions and and framed in the right way. Um, So, you know, case in point, we do a lot of work to identify objective measures of pain for future diagnostic technologies. There's a lot of people doing similar work which require brain scans. Now, those brain scans are fantastic, but they cost about $1,200 to $1,400 each for something that is the main reason why you go and see a GP in Australia. 
Therefore, is the government ever going to pay for every single person to have a brain scan every time they wanted to go to the doctor to then know that they had pain or not? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So use it as a research tool. Brilliant. Understand the fundamentals of pain. But don't ever then say this yep. is going to be a technology that's going to translate to, to a pain diagnostic. Instead, let's then look at the toolkits that are available to the engineers, the machine learning, AI community, to the physics, the quantum domain, to then start extracting those people and their ideas and bring them to the problem that we have, for example, in pain measurement, to actually create a few dollars per measurement, a few minutes per measurement kind of investment in time that is then scalable yeah. to a global population. That's sort of the framework that I, I really start to work from at the, at the um, outset. Now, to reflect on that, though, there are questions that perhaps have no relevance to any particular use yet because it's at the nascent origins of the field. Gravitational waves. When they first proposed gravitational waves, and there was a bunch of excitement. Einstein proposed a bunch of things. Yeah. They went and measured them. Now, they have then discovered new techniques and tools out of the creation of the measurement capability of gravitational waves, which have now begot new uses and new spin-out companies that have now created you know, really fascinating capabilities. If that community had kept that only focused on gravitational waves, we're still decades away from actually knowing right. how to use that. Their eyes were open to, oh, my goodness, high-powered laser used for this yeah. goal. There we go. Yeah. Synchronizing timing features. Oh, this could be good for GPS. You know, th that took a little bit of leakiness in the ideas flow to allow for those new streams of consciousness. To and happen. patience in the maturity of that field to start to build in the background, right? Right, which then means if we were to do this, we, let's say we've got an idea today for a future foundational discovery concept and we know we have to pursue this because it sh may change our understanding of the origins of the universe, right? Do we build that in isolation from all other parts of reality and other connectivity from other expertise? No. We should build that connected to a range of capabilities and other knowledge bases so that all the lessons that are learnt yeah. from this very exciting new exploration of new knowledge can actually flow on. Effect. Flow on. Yeah. But it can't then be, I'm going to publish my discoveries on this particular topic in my journal because I'm not going to go and read that journal. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know they were starting this discovery for gravitational waves until after it already started. Yeah. I learned about it because I was at a conference where they were talking about their discoveries and I got interested and then you know, understood more about their approaches. That's the connectivity that we need to bring. Now, that was a perchance opportunity that I had to yep. understand that. What if we did that intentionally yeah. at scale? Actually initiate that process yeah. and, and facilitate it. Or what if we had a digital AI tool that was working <laughs> alongside us to do that, right? To identify our our targeted audience that we should be talking to about this. Yeah. yeah. And that's in terms of what I do, BD, business development in a university setting, which is very different to if you're a business development manager in a pharmaceutical or a med device setting, is that we're actually supporting intellect and expertise and capacity and capability rather than the physical things that you're you're working on. Yeah. And part of my role is to bring real-world insights, global trends mm. to the picture to researchers like yourself mm. so they can say and see where exactly the research they're working on fits into the world. Yeah, and, and I think the other part that I value from having you part of the team, mate, is you actually then help us structure the deal that keeps us out of jail. Now, you know, that may sound stupid, but there are things that I think, oh, you know, this would be great if we could do this. And it's like, well, well, Mark, in, in all honesty, probably you need to structure the contract like this because X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, yeah, thanks, yeah. mate. Good. Excellent. I've been known to rein you in a couple of times, but it's more that I don't want to go to jail with you. Well, thank you. No, good, good. I appreciate that. But, but that's... But that's part of the reality we work within. We, we are, yeah. I'm a sole operator working within a large organization who, who graciously provides me with basically free rent and board mm. that I charge them my salary for <laughs> <laughs> to then go and do stuff that I think is important. And I'm trusted to do that. Now, that's a really privileged position to be in. But then I then need to actually reciprocate that by then going through the motions to make sure the contracts are in place in the right way, 
in a transactable fashion, in a timely fashion, that keeps my partners, whether it's government, defence, industry, alongside so to then actually utilise the knowledge that's actually gained from spending other people's money. Yeah. And I think that's, again, it would be lovely if there was a magic money tree that we could all just <laughs> sit under and capture some money on a day and then go and spend it as we wanted. I'm unaware of where that exists. And I think the thing that we don't do well enough here in Australia yet is the academics are schooled in how to apply for Category 1 funding. Go to the Australian Research Council, go to the National Health and Medical Research Council. The end. Uh, yeah. No. Have you ever heard of these other schemes or, dare I say, private equity? Because if your idea is that good and you've spent three months writing the grant application, you could literally have a conversation with an industry partner who is willing to make the decision to back your research program in an afternoon. Exactly. My point of view around all of that is that they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like no. it's not one or the no. other. It's not you live in grants and cat one no. and two land or you're working with industry and, sure. and investors and that. Yeah. Both can occur at the same time. This is that whole diversification of your research Absolutely. background yep. piece, right? Yep. I think what gets in the way, Mark, to be honest with you, is that whole researcher needing to publish, disseminate knowledge mm -hmm. versus over here, I'm being asked to withhold information, protect the confidential information yeah. so that we can patent and yeah. exploit. Those two things are kind of at odds with one another. And I find that that's where there's sometimes a bit of resistance. I hear that. But for very intelligent people to hold that dichotomy in their mind without acknowledging that it exists, that's where we've got to start challenging yeah. thinking. So I'm of the opinion that an idea is worth nothing. It's absolutely worth nothing. Um, and there's no point in all reality these days protecting just the idea. In many cases, there's also no point in protecting a large volume of data if you're not willing to then actually sure. prosecute upon that data. Absolutely, yeah. And so when we start thinking about patents and patent protection, let's not unnecessarily go down that journey um, when the patent is the destination. Honestly, mm. I don't want to waste your time, mm. mate, in just <laughs> securing a patent because yeah. that is worth nothing if it is not to be then prosecuted. Yep. And by doing that, you need to place it in the hands of a responsible entity that is then going to commercialize slash, dare I say, use that idea. <laughs> I mean, it, the thing that gets me excited is not necessarily the intellectual property that we've commercialized, but actually hearing other people reflect back to me, not knowing it's me, our technology or our practices that are out in, in the use. world. In yep. use. Yep. The other one, that just the other day, there was a a family friend who had just been into surgery and they were talking about this consult that they'd had from their anaesthetist after just before the surgery about they were going to be placed onto a medicine that was going to stop their transition to chronic pain and this was really quite innovative and yeah. Adelaide was doing a lot of that. And they were telling me, like, have you heard about this? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's the protocol we established. <laughs> oh, right. So that, that's spectacular. That's yes. why we keep we doing do what we do. We do yeah. what we do. So how do we then change that frame of mind in the person who's heard, I must do all of these things to keep my job and get my fellowship, whilst at the same time I'm being told I must commercialise, mm. whilst I need to then do my science communication but not sell all the secrets yeah. of what I'm doing? Have a vision in mind of what the actual ultimate goal is and having Having that ultimate goal and the ultimate why with the current project being the next logical step to that is so crucial. And that might be I need to write this grant application because it's Cat One money and I know I can do this because it's non-dilutive investment, right? Or it may be in parallel there is a segment of this that is really valuable to this company over here. Yeah. I'm going to have that conversation with that company and 20 others Yes, because – these are the people who may then be the people I work with to advance my own research knowledge of this future Cat One funded grant. And who knew by the end of that three-year journey, the Cat One funded grant sponsored a PhD student and a couple of techs who then go and work for the company that's on that right. same piece of kit. I mean, that's the kind of thing yep. we need to be thinking it's about. It's almost like a circular science economy. Yep. And most universities would have 
some big, some small, but uh, an office of professional support staff where they can get that advice from. So I'd encourage them to go and have chats with them in the first instance. They can get um, all kinds of advice around their research and articulating exactly what the capability is. And I use a tool that's a little bit like a business model canvas for anyone that's in startup or SME land around what's your value proposition, who are your customers, Mm. Mm. what channels are you using, where do you get your revenue from. Mm. I'm working with researchers within our establishment Mm. to build those sorts of things already. Mm. The feedback I've gotten from that is that that's a very useful exercise to see the bigger picture of what it is they've got to offer. Yeah, That's usually a good starting point and realisation that, I'm not just working on this gene or this piece of engineering kit and it might solve X, Y, and Z. What's the bigger picture? Yeah. And so I think if I look at then for an academic who is hearing this and going, okay, what's my next step? Yeah. Statistical significance doesn't matter. And that may sound heretical, how dare you, Mark? But actually it does not matter because if you can demonstrate a 1% or 2% gain in productivity, which may, across millions of samples, prove to be statistically significant. If you're dealing with a production process where you're dealing with a $100 million a week business, yeah. I'd be quite happily to 1%. take 1%, 1% of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Yeah. So we need to start thinking about this. Sometimes the actual gain is not going to be a statistical significance outcome. That's right. It may simply be a descriptive outcome, Um, and we need to have that narrative. The other part to that then is the statistical significant outcome that I care about may not be nearly anywhere near what is actually needed. So case in point, the other side of that is in pain. A statistical significant modulation of less than one on the uh, visual analog scale is a profound statistical effect. To the patient, they do not care. It is a binary threshold. Yes. Get me below four and, and I'm, I'm happy I'm to live. I'm good. I can live with below four. Yep. Five, see you later. Yeah. Four, I'm there. So why do we then design our studies to go for statistical significance if we know that there are these thresholds? Totally numbers? on, totally off. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the kinds of conversations that we need to have. And you won't get that insight unless mm-hmm. you're at the coalface, right? No. Talking to consumers, talking to the users, yeah. the adopters. Yeah. So that's what we're really through this podcast and through the conversations you have outside of it is what we're trying to stimulate. As part of talking about bench to boardroom, we don't want to neglect and make people who are working on blue sky Mm. foundational Mm. research Mm. feel as though everything they're working towards needs to end up in a Mm. new piece of kit, a new device. So I I view that as a bit of a pipeline in and of itself Mm. of foundational knowledge Mm. through to the translation and the real world outcomes Mm which again, I mentioned earlier, creates a bit of a feedback in and of itself. Mm. What would you say to people that don't see any of their work lending itself to commercial or translational outcomes? Yeah, so I, mean, I, think, I think what we need to uh, always be careful in describing when we talk about bench to boardroom, the expectation that everybody's science technology has to go to boardroom. Simply not the case. Yeah. Um, but what we do need to do is have communities of practice who are aware of the innovation cutting edge blue sky research connected to these ecosystems that can then translate these things out and share those developments. Yes. And I think that's where perhaps I see systems like in Germany where there are multiple systems like the Fraunhofer and and other universities Mm -hmm. co-incubating these cutting-edge research and translation all together, that's perhaps sometimes what's missing in some ecosystems. Right. Um, So we've created ivory towers of brilliant academic cutting-edge research that's not indelibly connected to reality in some cases. Spot on, yeah. So how do we do that? And that often comes down to having a conversation in mm. a coffee shop. Mm. Um, so that that's that's a key part. The, the other part that I think that's important there as we start to look at what are the benefits of exploring cutting-edge blue sky research in contrast to perhaps the demands of industry deliverables, you need creativity at the heart of all of this. And we can get excited by that cutting-edge research creativity component, which perhaps sometimes is lost in the speed-to-translation urgency. Yes. So we might need to actually dip in and out of both worlds regularly to actually have that excitement of the blue sky and the reality of the real world. 
The other part then is it's not all about science and tech. It's also about engaging deeply mm. with the humanities, professions and arts communities to explore is this the ethical thing to be doing? Yep. What is the best way to communicate this? Or, shock horror, how can their art contribute to our knowledge of visualising the science and vice versa? So, yep. you know, those kinds of things are exciting. And that's extending the bench to boardroom concept to cells to population. So it might be stuff that's done at the cellular and model level, mm. but it actually will impact societies and individual populations and disadvantaged populations mm. as mm. well. So not everything is, as you say, not everything is going to have a commercial outcome, a translatable outcome, other than it might shape policy or it might help government make a decision. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's the key part, that we can't all be looking to the unicorn exit. You know, the multi-billion dollar exit from a startup because some things are just too important to do that mm. or wait for that. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we need a portfolio approach to it. And, and we do, some of us have time to be able to take that portfolio. And I guess the challenge for the early career researcher who is trying to establish their track records, trying to sustain a, a burgeoning research career with not a lot of dollars, yeah. how do you then navigate that path to a sustainable approach? Uh, and I think, you know, by diversifying the communities that are engaged, so we're not just going back to government Cat One money. We're going to them. Don't get me wrong. Yep. Brilliant, non-dilutive investments. We'll take it. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll take it. But there are things that can be done alongside that that aren't destructing, that are actually value-adding and aren't just a, oh, I've got to do this because then I get my Cat One. Yeah. No, it's actually I do this because it's going to influence the research that I do to have greater impact faster and potentially even in a better way because mm. you've beveled off some of the edges of the blue sky work. And how do you know if you don't try, right? Like if you don't ask, you don't get. In, the industry might be ready to fund a pilot study or something ahead of you putting a grant application in, which may not be successful, in which case you've wasted several months to wait for an answer that's a no anyway. Yeah, and, and you know, I look at um, projects that we've had with companies where we've sat down with the company and said, listen, we've done phase one of a six-phase project. Team, you're going to waste your money on the next five. And they sort of turn around and say, yeah, but we're going to give you this money to do this work. So it's like, yeah, life's short. Mm. I'm going to waste your money. I don't want to spend my time doing a project that I know is not going to work because yeah. we've got foundational evidence. Now, they respect you for that. And so then it's like, well, okay, so – we're not going to do this project, but gosh, we've, we we still want to do some other things with yeah. them. It's like, fantastic. Great. Let's have that yeah. conversation. Realign. Right. So sometimes I think there's this hunt for the money, this, the excitement for the hunt for the money, and then, oh, I've got it now. I have to do it. Well, let's actually build this into yeah. a dynamic partnership between industry, between the funding agencies and yourself. And and the, the part that I've seen you're, you're a unique one in terms of your approach to the, the business development, um, IP management, tech transfer approach because it's never well, – I've never felt like I'm coming to you in trouble, um, <laughs> but I know that there have been other people that um, I've engaged with who no matter where I am in the process, yeah. I feel like I've done something wrong. And I think that's part of this breakdown between we, even within an organisation, mm. somehow you're another that I have to seek permission from. This isn't the case. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a team team project. The, these support officers like the tech transfer officers, they're usually pro-business. They want to get deals done. They want to help. So, Just don't come to them the day before the abstract's due. <laughs> that when happens. You've got, yeah, I know, but, yeah. but why? If we actually think that this is worthwhile to talk about to our scientific peers, then there probably is some kind of industry relevance to it. Yeah. And a quick phone call. Get on the you, front foot. Get on the front foot. I've Agreed. got this idea. What do you think? Well, you've <laughs> described it like that. You might want to think about it this way or even better. That's probably not ready yet, but I just had a meeting on yeah. another business development project. You should probably talk to them. Totally. Right? You're speaking my language, Mark. <laughs> and I'm really thrilled we've uh, had you as the first guest. Just want to wind it all up now, consolidate some thoughts. What do you think constitutes impactful science? Something that makes a difference. And that could be anything. If I'm able to train a trainee in a new approach that doesn't actually make a new discovery, but I've just imparted some knowledge to yeah. them, impact. If I make a fantastic drug discovery for a new molecular target that's going to do great things for pain, 
fantastic. But if no one learns about it, yep. oh, man. What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. Just a bit of a fun segment to finish off with. Wanted to just invite you to go on a journey either to the past or the future and imagine a specific technological advancement that doesn't exist yet. And just to describe the impact on society or how it might have changed your own field had it existed sooner. What I've been fortunate to do in my career is actually see some of these foundational shifts actually happen in neuroscience. So when I was at my first Society for Neuroscience meeting with 65,000 other scientists in New Orleans, there were two posters that talked about functional glial modulation, mine and my future bosses. We barely had anybody talk to us because we weren't looking at neurons. Society for Neuroscience now, more than three quarters of the papers acknowledge that the immune system in the yeah. brain and spinal cord are actually kind of important. I guess where I'm seeing a time warp into the future is our realisation that linear Descartes thinking of a machine as a body, neurons connecting to points in space with ionic conductance, actually there's probably a quantum biology piece that's actually at play in the immunology and then that's where our quantum sensors and quantum modelling comes in to explain far more complex interconnectivity within our brain, yeah. let alone our brain and our body. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm pretty sure that we will have quantum medicine. You know, we're talking about photoceuticals and electroceuticals in addition to pharmaceuticals now. Right. I think we will have quantum pseudicals into the future by manipulating quantum states. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. I don't know how we do it. It's on the horizon. It's at on some the horizon. Point. And that opens up, oh my goodness. We're talking sort of precision tuning and, and personalization or precision tuning, but also, you know, an identification of methods for interaction with our biology that we haven't appreciated. I mean, we didn't realize that uh, walking in the park was good for us, probably because we're getting both sun exposure, yeah. microbiome manipulation, and a little bit of exercise. Yeah. Before it would have been, oh, it's just good for you. Now we're understanding the, the molecular origins yeah, of that. Yeah. If quantum bio exists, how has it evolved? What have we co-evolved with it? And what can we then do to manipulate? Nuts. I don't know. Yeah. We'll find out. Well, that's it. And I'm, I plan to stick around for that journey and in this role. So uh, look forward to what the future holds. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much. I really loved having you on as my first guest and look forward to continuing to work with you Thanks, and, and seeing where we go with it. Did thank it. you. Good luck. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to It's Not All Academic on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to spread the word. Together, let's open our eyes to the incredible world of applied innovation.